If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. Um, just a reminder to the men in the room, because I completely got my mix, or weeks mixed up and thought I had a whole other week to get in front of you and put this in the program. But actually, this next Saturday is our next men's breakfast. Um, and so this is your one announcement um, of me letting you know uh, any guys in the room. And what I would also encourage is if uh, you guys in the room have uh, sons, younger sons, bring them. Uh, this is not just for uh, those over 30, those over 40, and, and so on. It's for all of the guys together. Um, so I'd encourage you to, men, be there. Bring your sons. Encourage, if you can't be here, encourage your sons to go. Um, it's a great opportunity to eat good food and hang out together. So just want to remind you, this Saturday at 8 a.m. Uh, is men's breakfast. Um, Last week, we started a new series in the book of Philippians titled Together We Are Together for the Gospel. One of our series uh, earlier last year was Together We Believe. And so I, I'm kind of struggling with remembering that that's not where we're at. It's Together for the Gospel. And last week, I read uh, through the whole book of Philippians. And now, starting today, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Now, as you go there, what I'd like to do as we dive in this morning is kind of try something new uh, for me in this series. That because my uh, outline is really an expositional outline from the text, rather than read the whole text and then teach from it and continue to really go back to it and refer to it and repeat it, what I'm going to do is just read a little of the text and then we'll discuss and unpack it. And then I'll read a little bit of the text. And then we'll go again and discuss and unpack it and so on. And so where we're going to start this morning as we dive in is we're going to read the first two verses together. And then we'll discuss it. So Philippians chapter 1 starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at those two and that, that greeting in those first two verses, the greeting in Paul's pastoral letters were for the purpose of not only giving a, a welcoming to the church or to the reader, but also to really identify authorship. I mean, much like if you receive an email, you look at the from address, or, or when you receive a call, you look at the caller ID. You want to know, who is this from? And so Paul's letting the church know as they receive this letter, listen, this is from me, from Paul, and this is also from Timothy. Now, greetings, especially when they're short like this, really kind of tend to be something we overlook. But Paul uses a word here in these first two verses that describes not only him and Timothy in an important way, but I really believe sets the tone for the entire book of Philippians. Paul says that they are servants of Christ Jesus. Now, if we dig into that a little bit more, the Greek word that he uses there is doulos. And this word is better translated as bondservants or slave. So this is really incredible because Paul, as he's writing, is in prison. And Timothy is by his side helping him write this letter. But Paul does not open his letter writing that he is a slave or an inmate locked away in a Roman jail. No, he's identifying himself as a slave to Christ. And so this whole letter for Paul is from prison, but it's with a focus of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And so he's writing to the church and to the leaders of the church. And this letter to the Philippians really overflows with joy and thanksgiving. But it's not because of Paul's conditions, because of his circumstances, although it really could have been. Because where Paul is at is not a cozy or luxurious space, but really a dimly lit, awful smelling and somewhat dangerous prison cell. I mean, even now in our 21st century culture, our view and our understanding of prison is not like the first century Rome. We picture orange jumpsuits. We picture cells with bunks and a a single toilet and a sink. We picture the yard where inmates go to exercise and be outside. But the prison that Paul was in was much different than what we imagine. The place Paul was in was more like a dungeon. There was intentionally very little light allowed in. So you really had no sense of day. And if you can imagine, then you have no exposure to the sun, no vitamin D, and possibly only one or two uh, proper bathrooms for a few hundred uh, prisoners. And really, you could not survive on prison food alone. You would need to rely on some kind of family member or family unit or friends to really feed you because if you relied on prison food alone, you would die. There wasn't enough there. And each prisoner had chains either around their their neck or their hands or their feet, depending on the jailer's choosing. And these chains would have been dirty and heavy. Weighing at about 10 to 15 pounds, these chains would be rusty and dirty from previous use and, and bodily fluid from others. And so even as one historian notes when referring to this Roman prison, its neglect and darkness and stench gave it a hideous and terrifying appearance. That if you were in that area of Rome where the prison was and you were walking that way and you smelt something awful, that was most likely the prison. And it was this dungeon-type space. And yet, Paul's letter is bursting with joy. Now, joy, for us to understand in a biblical sense, must be understood to be related to God. So what I mean by that is that it must be understood to be that which becomes yours in Christ. That it must be understood that it's a permanent possession of every believer to have joy. So it's not this whimsical experience. It's not this momentary feeling that comes and it goes. We're talking about joy, not about happiness. And an amazing definition that I found this week that I believe just really perfectly explains joy is that joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. That's really it. And truly, I believe that only Christians know true and lasting joy. I mean, we see in the New Testament, the verb to rejoice appears 74 times. The noun joy appears 59 times in the New Testament. This seems to be quite important for the believers. So Paul isn't concerned mainly with his condition, but despite it, he's focused on the joy and the unity of the believers. And really in these introductions, it's common for Paul's letters to include a thanksgiving section. But as we're going to see from the rest of the text in verses 3 through 11, Paul's language here goes beyond traditional expression of gratitude. Because the believers 
were quick to support Paul. They were concerned for him. They were caring in his condition and and in his imprisonment for the gospel. But remember, as Paul writes, he doesn't begin with a worry or a concern. He doesn't even focus on his own need, but rather his affection and his love and his desire for the church and its leaders in Philippi. And so what we're going to see and unpack from the rest of our text this morning is that we need to actively partner in the gospel where we are sharers of grace and truth, that our love would abound with knowledge and discernment. That we need to actively partner in the gospel where we are sharers of grace and truth, that our love would abound with knowledge and discernment. And so now we're going to look at verses 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So here, Paul is remembering all that the Philippians did for him and how they supported him. He was naturally grateful to the Philippians, but more so, he's grateful to God who had worked such kindness through them. That they had actively partnered together in the gospel with Paul. Now remember, Paul's not writing to a group that's unknown to him. This is not a group that he has not met. In fact, if we go back and we read in Acts chapter 16, we know that Paul planted this church He spent time with these people and he loved these people. We see in Acts 16 about the Philippian jailer that's converted. We hear the story of Lydia. Lydia is probably one of my favorite uh, female characters in the New Testament. I've always told my wife, if we have a a, a little girl, I want to name her Lydia because I just love Lydia. She just really has an affection for the gospel. She hears the apostles and then she's like, hey, put me to work for the gospel. Like, like, I love Jesus. Show me to be approved and put me to work. And I just love her heart in that. And so we read these stories of these relationships that Paul had, this investment that Paul had into this church. So for Paul to say in verse three that he is thanking God in all his remembrance of them, he's speaking in a relational way of knowing them personally. And so let me tell you this. I have often during the week sat in the chairs that you're sitting in praying prayers for you as I I go to write my message. There's never a time for me where I'm sitting and I'm just preparing and going, man, this is what you should hear, but really praying for you that God would just work in us through his word. And often when I'm praying for you, my heart is really turned to joy for you. My mind fills with the requests that you have, the the needs that you have. And so what Paul is saying here further in verse four is that this brings him joy that he thinks of them because of their partnership, their friendship in the gospel. And the word partnership he uses here later in verse five in Greek is koinonia. Now in the New Testament, koinonia often describes the association of those within the Christian community based on their mutual faith. In fact, when we read in Acts 2, when it talks about the fellowship of believers, it's a koinonia. And so Paul is not only filled with joy 
because of the financial care that the Philippians have provided, but also that their giving and that their care has been with a gospel focus and a gospel sharing in mind. And so this is where it becomes different to actively participate in or partner together. I mean, because if we're honest, it's, it's easy and really doesn't cost us much to give a couple bucks to a need or to sacrifice a, a morning for an hour. But Paul is referring here not just to a single gift or, or to a moment of care. The type of partnership that Paul is referring to, this koinonia, is a type of committed fellowship that's really bonded by the life and the example and the work of Christ. So Paul isn't focused on his circumstances, and he isn't focused on his own strength. He's not even focused on those things in the Philippians. He has a joy and a confidence that's greater than his circumstances. And so he's rejoicing in his active partnership in the gospel with the church. In fact, he's able to look beyond his circumstances, look beyond his chains, and through prayer, truly invest in this church that he loves. So let me ask you this. Do we have these type of relationships in the church? Are you seeking these type of relationships out? The type of relationships and the type of friendships where when you think of them, it stirs your heart towards joy and you long to pray for them and even long to be with them. An example that just came to mind in my, my study was uh, when uh, my wife had miscarried. And that was just a, an emotional time to just walk through that. And, and then on top of that, uh, uh, day before hearing that the lead pastor of our network uh, had an inoperable brain tumor. And just kind of dealing with all of this, I remember uh, by the grace of God and him seeing far beyond that I could, uh, my pastoral intern was uh, preparing to teach that weekend. But I met with him. I cleared my schedule, but kept that meeting. And I remember sitting with him and him just being in tears. And for me, I'm, I'm not really a guy who cries. I just kind of struggle with that. It's either, it, it, for me, it's either like you cry too much or you don't cry at all. And I just am in an imbalance in that. And uh, I remember sitting with him and him just being in tears and feeling as though my brother in Christ was mourning with me as I'm mourning. He's feeling these things and just saying to me, man, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, and just allowing that to be and, and to be together and to bear that burden with one another. And also many times I've had conversations with him where it's just stirred both of our hearts towards a, a deep affection and, and love for one another. And so this is the type of intimate community relationships that Paul's talking about. And really, if we're honest, you can't be in a community of believers and not have this. You cannot truly be in a group of Christian community believers and not have this. Now, you can sit in a community of believers and not feel this and not be active in this, but you can't be in that community and not have this. Are you tracking with me? It's that for us to be this type of community together, to have this type of partnership, it has to be based upon Christ. It is based upon Christ in us. 
that as we move forward together, we are moving in a way where we are devoted to, we're united in, and we're caring for one another. Now, this is sometimes messy and difficult and scary, especially for you introverts in the room. But this is a gospel work. It's a gospel work that is the mark of our love for one another and our faith in Christ. And so this is where we, as, as Paul is expressing to the church in Philippi, are really active in gathering in and devoted to one another based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what that means is that our relationships are not based upon race or style or age or interests or income level. Our relationship to one another and our partnership to one another is based upon Christ. So the church in Philippi didn't wait to see if Paul was some type of winner or successful leader before they supported him. They got behind Paul and his ministry early and they continued to support him. And really, this is what a gospel community does. Because they're not seeing Paul through a physical or a limited sense. They're seeing him based upon the gospel, which they are also partnering with him in. And so they're seeing him as a servant of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, we see that Paul says his confidence is further in God. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this work in the believer will not be finally complete until the day of Jesus Christ, at the day of his return. And in this, verse 6, Paul's putting the proper focus in order. That this gospel work began by God and will continue to come to completion by the work of God. So our partnering in the gospel together is not only where we are serving one another or working side by side together, but it's also where God is working in us and through us. And so here Paul's sharing his confidence in the Christ-centered sanctification of the believers in Philippi. So basically what that means is that he trusts in the work of God in their lives as they labor in the gospel to become more and more like Jesus. And this is also where they are also sharers of grace and truth. And we see this in verse seven and eight. Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So here Paul is voicing his deep affection for the church. And notice that his affection isn't just a feeling, it's a deep commitment. In verse 7 he says, I hold you in my heart. And Paul is moved by the church's support. That they're not only giving to him, but also, as he said in verse 7, that they are partakers with him. So they're partakers with him. And as this, he identifies with them as sharing God's grace for the advance of the gospel. Now, what I want us to take note of is what Paul is saying in the end of verse 7 when he says that they are partakers. 
He's saying they are partakers. And as they are, it is in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. See, Paul was continually taking criticism for his view of the gospel. Specifically, he was taking criticism for not requiring non-Jewish Christians to adopt the Jewish law. Now, we've talked much about this in our uh, study through Galatians, Galatians, and we know the continuing battle Paul faced because Paul preached that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this landed him in prison. But yet the Philippians shared with Paul, both in resources and in relationship. And in that, Paul is saying, I thank God for you, and I have a deep affection for you, because you are faithful, but you're faithful not only to me, but ultimately to the truth. And so Paul's relationship with the church and their dedication to one another is beyond the circumstances. It's beyond the circumstances that Paul is facing and even that the church would face. Now the affection Paul had for the Philippians and they had for him, we need to understand, comes only through a shared relationship with Jesus Christ. Because those who know Jesus are in relationship with Jesus, are joined in a spiritual bond that runs deeper than any human tie. And so truth be told, we desperately need, and and honestly, we often want this kind of deep relationship. But I think sometimes we also don't know how to find it or even how to sustain it. Because deep relationship always comes at a cost of some kind. It always comes at a cost. And you and I cannot know one another deeply without investment of time and investment of self. You can't just exist in a body of believers and say, I'm pretty sure I know everybody without making an investment that it one way or another is going to cost you. And so to be sharers of grace and truth, we have to partner together in a way that we would seek to know and even be known deeply. That we would have a gospel view of each other and a gospel sharing with one another. And so this is why Paul says in verse eight, that God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So he's saying, listen, God can test me in this and he knows that I am speaking the truth in this, that I love you as Christ loves you because they're joined in a spiritual bond together. They're joined in this deep koinonia type relationship. And then finally, we see in verses nine through 11, Paul shares with the Philippians his prayer for them. A beautiful and a powerful prayer that we see starting in verse nine. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, the Philippians had a lot of love. And they showed it to Paul. And yet in this, as Paul's praying, he doesn't hesitate to pray that their love would continue to abound more and more. 
Because it doesn't matter how much love we have for one another, we can still have more. Now, some of you are saying, man, it's cost me a lot to love that person. I don't know if I can give even more, but we can have more. And so as Paul explains later about this love, this agape love, it involves putting others before ourselves. It's somewhat of a costly love. Remember what Paul said earlier in verse six, that he trusts in the work of God in their lives as they labor in the gospel to become more and more like Jesus. And so what's one of the main ways that we become more and more like Jesus? It's by putting others above ourselves and loving them deeply and loving them sacrificially. Now, Paul uses two words here that help us clarify how our love should abound because it's easy for us to just think of loving others as a passing momentary thing. But Paul speaks to getting intentional about love. Paul's asking that their love would express, express itself in an intimate knowledge of who God is. And sometimes we say the term, love is blind. But God in his word many times says, no, love needs clear vision. So to give clear vision to love, that it would abound. Paul uses the word knowledge and the word discernment that the knowledge that Paul has in mind is not an, just an intellectual knowledge, but an experiential knowledge where it's requiring through acts of love that we wouldn't just know what needs to be dealt with, what needs to be extended, the love that we need to give, but we would put feet to that thought. That we would seek to know what others need and act to move forward and move towards them in that love. And he also says with all discernment, and the Greek term he uses here is asathesis. And this refers to the ability to make decisions for the benefit of others. So it's not just do whatever seems loving at the time, but to truly discern what is beneficial to the person. I mean, this is truly how we get intentional about love, where we're seeking to know the need and discerning how do we fill that need. And really, if we look at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, this is the type of intentional love that God has for us. That he knew our need, even when we had not known our need. And so God, in his perfect will, determined that he would fill that need. Not only for our redeeming, but for our reconciliation between us and him. By sending Jesus to sacrificially love us by dying in our place so that those who would believe in him, in his death to cover our sin, in his resurrection for redemption, and in his reconciliation for relationship, those who would believe upon him in this would have life in him. And so we have this example of love towards others in a way that puts them before ourselves because Jesus did this. Why do we love others? Because Jesus loved others. Why do we love one another in the church? Because Jesus has first loved us. And so for our love to abound in knowledge and in all discernment, it means we're going beyond what we think love means and really getting after what love truly is. So think of it this way. This isn't a great example, but I think it's a helpful one. 
For those of you in the room that are married, when you first got married, there were probably simple things that you were doing that were loving for you to do towards one another. But now as you're growing in your knowledge of one another and you're beginning to discern what's truly loving, your actions are changing. So maybe once, gentlemen, you you brought her home flowers after work and you brought them to her and you said, I love you. And now it's spending a Saturday pulling weeds. Quite the opposite of the flower world. (laughs) I think I heard an amen. So that's changed. And maybe you once spent time with him watching his favorite sport. This is loving for you to do. And now you give him space to just be, to go watch the sport, to go just be and to rest. See, these aren't perfect examples, but they speak to the idea of ways you may have at first known how to love. And now as you've learned to love and as you've grown, you know how to better love. And I hope that these examples help us understand how to better know and discern how we can grow in our love for one another. Because truth be told, we aren't good guessers. Loving one another isn't something that's always going to come easy for us. We need to work at it and we need to grow in it. And we see Paul goes on to say in verse 10 that his prayer for the church is that when this community of believers is committed to this work and is intentional about this kind of love, then we may be able to, ex- uh, we may be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, often when we read a text over and over, we'll just skim over it, but there's so many important words that here that Paul's using. The words pure and blameless are incredibly powerful in this text. I mean, the word pure comes from two other words that really mean judgment and sunlight. And so for an example, in the first century, the, the shops that where people would go and, and do their shopping often were dimly lit, not lit very well. And so prospective customers would have a, a trouble viewing what they were wearing and others would have a trouble seeing them. So when they would take the, the pottery or the fabric into the sunlight, they could see it as it really was. The sunlight would reveal the truth. So what that means to be pure is that it's to live in such a way that the truth about who you are is clear. It means that people don't have to wonder about who you are in the darkness because you have nothing to hide. So you're the same in the darkness as you are in the light. You're the same at work, at school, as you are in church on Sunday morning. You're the same behind closed doors as you are in public. And so to be pure really means to be a sunlight Christian, where your life is consistent no matter where you are at and no matter who you are with. And then the word blameless that Paul uses really means that you are free from a constant playing with and running firsthand into sin. And that also that you would be blameless, blameless of causing others to do that. So Paul is saying, part of his prayer here in verse 10, is that the church in Philippi would lead blameless lives before Christ and in Christ be faithful until his return. 
And then finally, we see in verse 11 that we read, Paul prays that the church in Philippi would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, the Bible often uses the metaphor of a fruit tree to describe both the the life of the righteous and the life of the wicked. In fact, we know from Matthew 7 that Jesus spoke about the difference between the fruit of the righteous and the fruit of the wicked, even the fruit of the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 7, verses 18 through 20, he says, A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So Paul is praying for the fruit in the Christian's life to be visible Christian character. And he gives us some key elements that show us evidence of righteous fruit. He said that it comes through Jesus Christ and that it is to the glory and praise of God. So the Christian life is a theodoxic life. Now, if you're wondering what that word is, it's, it's kind of made up. So if you go and look for it, it's going to be hard to find it. But it's really two words brought together for a holistic meaning of the text here. It really gives us an idea and helps us see what man's chief end is. Because theo means God and doxic means glory as the word doxology. So a theodoxic life is one that brings glory or praise to God. So really what Paul's praying here is a wonderful prayer for his church. And and I would pray this for you and I together, that we would not go from a place of, of once sharing together, of once working together, or once partnering together into some kind of passivity or really working alone individually, but that we would continue in koinonia. We would continue in a committed fellowship that is bonded by the life and the example of Christ. And even as one theologian noted, in some ways, this text really covers much of what God wants to do in us and through us together for the gospel. I mean, we could rest in this text verse by verse for week after week and still not cover the entirety of it. Because Paul's praying this not for a moment of their living, not for a moment in their church, but for their life as a whole, that they would live the theodoxic life. So as we consider this morning how we need to actively partner together in the gospel, where we are sharers of grace and truth, where our love would abound in knowledge and discernment. Let me close by asking you this. Are we, as a community of believers, living the theodoxic life together? Are we living the life that is rooted in relationship with the Father and desiring to bring him glory? Are we living the theodoxic life together? Let's pray.